good. Everything's <laughs> everything's wonderful. Everything's just wonderful. Oh yes, yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. So this whole thing over the weekend was uh, this whole this whole decision and and everything else has been a little bit crazy. I kind of feel like a chicken without a head running around trying to get everybody on the same page. Yeah, I was just like, you know, I'm going to, all right, so I'm going to tell you guys what's going on here. I'm going to tell you guys what's going on. And then I was like, you know what? If you guys aren't willing to see this for yourself, you're just going to, you know, misconstrue and muddy the waters. I can't help you. We'll just talk about it on Monday on the space. You know? Yeah, I was glad you, you're always doing one. So I was glad that you decided to do one today. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think the update's good. This is like part seven or part eight of the Missouri v. Biden series. I'm just now seeing like people like, Congress people are like, hey, check this case out. We're all like, uh, we kind of been here for a while. Where have you been? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I mean, it does involve you guys, just so we're clear, but you know. Yeah. We know how valuable Congress is. So. <laughs> oh, God. Nick Sorter and I covered it all last week. Trust me. It was a very quote unquote valuable, I'll put it that way. I, uh, look, listen, I give you credit because I, I talked about it for like a little bit, but I, I, it's so frustrating. It's if any corporation anywhere in the world ran like this effing government, they would be out of business in less than a month. Forget about years. Yeah. Like everybody would have been fired within 30 days, (laughs) just to be clear. (laughs) Literally everybody hemorrhaging money, not able to make decisions, bickering amongst one another. Um, imagine trying to run a board meeting and all you need to do is elect the chair to, to, to chair the meeting and you can't do that because you're too busy fighting with each other over who which, I mean, come on. Like, it's, you know what it is? It reminds me of local politics when a new guard comes in with a new vision and direction and the old guard does not want to let go of the microphone. It's exactly what it is. Because I experienced it myself, so I know. And it's terrible. Like, imagine, right? Imagine for a moment you're an employer. And all of your employees are taking money from adversarial companies for insider secrets in the company. And then they're like, yeah, it's fine. We'll just keep them. It's no big deal. Like, imagine. (laughs) And it's funny because, like, we accept this trash. We accept it. We don't accept it, but we don't do anything about it. Like, this is like one of the main things, you know, we had opportunities to get rid of a lot of these people and elect their primary challengers. But unfortunately, a lot of the population doesn't take advantage of the primary um, of the primary election process. And I think that if anything needs to happen, we need to educate people more on how important primaries really are, um, because once you pass that, you're stuck with who you're stuck with. And then you're like, OK, well, do I vote for this person or do I vote? you know, skip it. And then a Democrat gets in or whatever. So, well, then you would be very proud of us. So last week while we were covering for hours a day, like seven hours, Tracy, um, hours a day while we were covering this and we had Congress people stop in, we had Santos and Gates and Boebert and Donalds and a few other people would pop in and kind of tell us what's going on. Nick was then up in DC reporting from DC. We got actually, uh, Jim Jordan's first statement to anyone post that vote where he, stepped away from uh, the process. He actually came he actually interviewed with Nick on the space, asked a few, answered a few questions before he went and talked to the press. 
So that was pretty cool. But what we were doing to fill time in some of that instances was like, instead of just like, you know, opining on how bad our governments run, we started bringing up primary challengers to the holdouts. So we mm-hmm. had challengers for Ferguson and Georgia, Jim Bennett, who's in here. We had John O'Shea, who was going to try to primary Kay Granger out of Texas. We had Victor Avia, who's trying to primary Gonzalez out of Texas. We have Trent. We had Trent here from Colorado challenging Ken Buck. And many other primary challengers, and they were basically fielding questions, uh, speaking with people, answering questions, and, and putting forth, and actually putting forth campaigns uh, to go. And we actually had two additional people, including Matt Couch. Matt Couch is going to run against Womack in Northwest Arkansas. He's probably going to win. He's probably going to win. So, so listen, it, that's great, and I love it. I just want everybody to understand that when you try to primary a an entrenched GOP bureaucrat. You would better be ready with an army of people who live in your area, an army of them, and the ability to at least have some name recognition ready to go in your, you need to start planning this. Like they're going to throw everything plus the kitchen sink and the bathroom bathtub at you to try and stop you from doing this. They will throw money. They will buy mailers for the other candidates. They like on the D side, you are, the, the length they'll go to to stop new primary challengers is it, it's it's almost unfathomable, but it happens all the time. Like it happened here in South Carolina. Everybody's always like, hey, why do you have uh, Lindsey Graham? Why do you keep voting in Lindsey Graham? Do you want to know why we vote in Lindsey Graham? We vote in Lindsey Graham because anytime anybody tries to primary Lindsey Graham, the GOP here in South Carolina funds. They do things they're not supposed to do, okay? Because they're not supposed to get involved in primaries at all. At all. They're not supposed to choose a candidate. Primaries are supposed to be primaries. The GOP doesn't make a preference. And there's, the rules say they must not get involved, but they do. And the person who was primarying Lindsey Graham last time just got absolutely destroyed by the South Carolina good old boy money machine. And there was just no hope for him after that. So you have to be prepared for that trash. Get your battle gear on and get ready to charge in there. And I have been saying to myself for years now, I would love to primary Lindsey Graham in South Carolina. Oh, I would love nothing more than to get rid of diversity, hire Lady G. Uh, so we're going to have to we're going to have to get that done. <laughs> it's it's not easy. I mean, he would probably like rip my family apart. Like, you know, they go to they I just I just ran the GOP here in my county, and they tried to destroy me under false you know, lawsuits and all kinds of other stuff. It was something else. So it's not easy, but if you have the fortitude to do it and the people stay behind you, it's possible. You just need to do it with the strategy and do it with the support of your constituency, and then you've got a chance. Okay, prolonged. Trash, you realize you're on mute. Well, I do, I do now. <laughs> dang it. I was going to say. <laughs> what I was saying was we're at about 150 people and climbing. So we can probably start to get into this, Tracy. I don't know if, do you want me to recap? Do you kind of want to recap? You've been covering this since last May. And then I jumped on around January. So do you want to recap? Do you want me to recap? How do you want to do this? Let's do it as a kind of tag team, if that works Sounds for good you. to me. Why don't you kick us off and then I can kind of color in some lines. Sure thing. So, um, first of all, thank you so much to Trash, who does nothing but amazing work 24 hours a day, 
seven days a week. I recommend him to all of my friends whenever I have a chance. And I'm going to do it again, even though you're all here for him as it is. I love you. You're fantastic in so many ways. And it's just a breath of fresh air to have someone like you on our side. So that's what I have to say first. Um, second of all, this is mildly frustrating for me to because here's what happened. So as we last left off, the the injunction was held by the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the injunction basically just says, you guys cannot, government, um, get together with social media companies and coerce them to remove posts that are, quote, wrong think, regardless of what they're about. It's not your place. That's it in a nutshell. So that's the only thing this injunction stopped them from doing. You cannot recommend, coerce, tell, suggest that social media companies remove social media posts. You cannot interfere in their terms of service and content moderation strategy. None of that stuff. So the court originally granted that injunction, but only for the White House, the CDC, the Surgeon General, and the FBI, and they left CISA out of it. Everybody, like the three of us, me, you, and Name, all raised ruckus about it and said, you know, CISA needs to be included here, and here's why. It turned out that Missouri and Louisiana actually said to the Fifth Circuit, we want you to reconsider this decision because it's a mistake. You didn't include CISA. Here's why it's a mistake. The Fifth Circuit said, oh, my gosh, you're right. It is a mistake. We're going to add them on. And then it went back up to the Supreme Court because, of course, the government wants to censor you. And the Supreme Court had a stay on that injunction while they decided whether or not they were going to take the case at all. Well, Friday, we got our our answer. Now, when I say take the case, I don't mean that they're hearing the case of Missouri v. Biden. The case of Missouri v. Biden is currently ongoing in district court in Louisiana. It hasn't even gotten to evidentiary hearing yet. It's in the very early stages. The temporary injunction part of this came first because the plaintiffs and everyone else, as per the fifth, are being harmed irreparably every single day that this decision or that this temporary injunction is not in place. So the case is still ongoing. The temporary injunction is what the Supreme Court will be hearing. The government says this this injunction actually stops our ability to speak. It stops our ability to use the bully pul pulpit to try and influence citizens the way that we think things should go. And that's not true at all. That is the opposite of what this injunction does. This injunction merely bars already unconstitutional acts that the federal government could take. So the fact that they've misrepresented it so much is, is super interesting. So what happened now is the Supreme Court ruled, yes, we're going we're gonna to take this case up and we'll hear it in the spring. But unfortunately, they placed an indefinite stay on the temporary injunction. And what that means is that stay, meaning that they, the injunction does not take effect, is in place until next spring when the SCOTUS gets back together and starts hearing cases. Now, there were three dissenting opinions from that, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, and Justice Gorsuch. All three of them said, what in the hell are you doing here? This is unbelievable. And further, why does the, does the government have the intention of acting unconstitutionally in the interim while we wait for this case to happen in front of us? Like, that's why they're complaining about it. And they basically said, and Trash, you correct me if I'm wrong, they basically said in the dissent, which is unheard of, it's unprecedented for a five-page dissent 
to be written on a case like this where they're just basically granting cert and a stay. Um, but they said they didn't even read it to know whether or not they should be doing this or not. It's a travesty. And that's what Gorsuch, Alito, and um, Thomas said in their dissent. So where we're at right now is a stay on this injunction until the spring when the Supreme Court gets back together to decide whether or not the injunction was warranted. And if we go off of what Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas said, it absolutely was warranted. The plaintiffs are likely to succeed on the merits. They are experiencing um, harm every single day that this continues to happen. And this stay was inappropriate and the injunction should be upheld. And that's basically where we're at. Yeah, that, no, that's uh, although that is 100 percent correct. And your reporting on this has been spot on. And, <clears throat> you know, there's a lot to unpack with this case. Like, listen, when I was so when I say words like this is a really fun case, I don't mean that, like, it's super enjoyable and how fun it is. What I mean is it actually gets to the nuts and bolts of what's going on. And with people like Tracy, myself, Jennifer, maybe many people up here who have been banned, censored, you know, de, you know demonetized, deplatformed, all of these things through these apparatuses that we now have a case that is actually going forth and even th even appeals courts and SCOTUS say, OK, this case has merit. This case does need to go forward. Yep. And when you hear things like that and they're like, oh, you know what? You're right. We shouldn't have left CISA out. I think we can get into a little bit of what CISA is and why it's so important. I can see a bunch of people listening that I follow. They all know. But there may be a lot of people that go back and listen to this recording. There's 265 people in here at this moment. They may not know what CISA is really all about and how and how detrimental it is to the American people. Maybe we can start there. Because what you said um, was about originally. So the judge, just so we know, that's hearing this case is down in Louisiana, Judge Terry Doty. Chair Terry Doty uh, is really based. Matter of fact, you're working on following another case that he has as well. Um, very similar. I'd like to hear about that as well. But this judge, so like, just so you guys know, so kind of the time of events, it was filed when? Back in May of last year, I believe, Tracy, is that correct? May of 2022, yep. correct. Yep. So May of last year, they filed this case. And it was Andrew Bailey, who at the time was the attorney general for the state of Missouri. And then I believe Jeff Landry joined shortly after, correct? Uh, yes. And I believe that Eric, uh, Eric Schmidt started it in Missouri yep. and then he went to the Senate. So, right. He's in the Senate now. Yep. yep. I believe. Yeah. So he started it and, and Bailey took over. Yep. Yep. And Andrew Bailey's been excellent. Really good guy. But my favorite is Jeff Landry, which, by the way, take a moment to congratulate <laughs> Jeff Landry. He's now the governor. Yes. The governor. He flipped Louisiana red. Uh, just so we're clear, Tracy and I, we've been talking about this for for what? months on end and we all called it we're like no just gonna be the next governor you watch he's gonna be the next governor of louisiana they're like he's good badass and i said to him when i interviewed him i was like this man's gonna be president one day he he has president written all over his ass he better run for president one day he's so sharp he is so sharp so smart and you know you think that that we know a lot about this stuff that's going on this guy is really well versed in the censorship apparatus he really understands this and he's understood it for a very long time uh jeff landry is absolutely an american patriot so congratulations to him for winning the governorship but one of the things that uh, terry doty who's the judge out of the fifth circuit down there you know what i better set the stage tracy a little bit more here so the fifth circuit court of appeals it's not a single judge Okay, this is like a panel of, I believe it's three judges, Tracy, is that correct? There's three judges that are overseeing this in the fifth. 
This one, in, yes. in the Fifth Circuit, yeah. And so this, the Fifth Circuit has the appeals court. They So obviously the government didn't like what Terry Doty released on July 4th, I might add, of this year. Like, so, <laughs> so based. Um, he releases his opinion and, and warned and, and, and uh, up, I'm sorry, enforces the injunction and puts in some stipulations that the government, I think, rightfully so made an argument on, on a couple things. But yet he said, you're right. Actually, you should be able to coordinate if there's actually a legal activity going on on a platform. You should be able to, if there's an actual real national security threat, be able to coordinate with social media companies. Yes, you should. And I agree. And you should be able to talk to your constituents. You should be able to have an official page. You should be able to say whatever you want to people and have them listen. Now, he said all those things. But what he said you can't do is go against constitutionally protected First Amendment speech. That is opinions. That, that's even that's even information that may be incorrect. It's not the government's business to, to be the arbiter of truth. That's not how this works. And but what Jeff Landry pointed out in your interview, Tracy, if you guys haven't seen it, go go to Tracy's uh, Rumble. Uh, I, I can, you can find it on what Uncover DC, the Dark to Light podcast with uh, you. Did- yeah, or or Uncover DC's Rumble channel and just search Landry. Perfect. Yep. Yeah, highly recommend go watching that because one of the things that he pointed out that I think was very succinct and very important to point out. And Jen, I'm coming to you. Um, he pointed out it's not just your right to speak. You also have a first, a first Amendment right to hear others' opinions and what other people say. So it's not just that you can speak it. You have a right to listen. You have a right to hear it. Very important to note. Go. Yes, and the Fifth Circuit, I mean, the Fifth Circuit even went further with that um, and, and, and basically said that forever now, because of this, well, that's a, it's kind of a different tangent. I'll wait. Keep going. Sorry. Yeah, because I'm going to get there as well. I think I see exactly where you're going with this. So, uh, Jen, your hand shut up. So I don't want to go too far off topic before we get there. So go ahead, Jen. Hey, guys. Thanks. Um, how does Jeff Landry getting elected to governor affect this case, like negatively or positively? Well, not only did Jeff Landry get a, a, elected to governor, which will be in November, but the Solicitor General of Louisiana, who is also a, a, a bullish attorney on this case, she's brilliant, and she has actually a vaccine-injured son, um, Liz Merle, is running for AG, and she's, she went to a runoff. So she's running to take Landry's spot. So that election will be in November. Um, it doesn't affect any, anything in the short term. And I, I don't think Louisiana is going to have another Solicitor General who will be anti this case given the tenor of that office yeah it, it that's the the people that are around uh landry and he has amassed a lot of power now in louisiana um he is a very powerful guy down there now and i i i, I agree with you tracy i, I led to, to believe that anybody that's going to be surrounding these kind of offices are going to be nowhere near anti this case i think they're going to be pro uh this case and and frankly you know putting politics aside i don't This is what I've been trying to scream to even people on the left, which they're now seeing it, by the way. I said, you know, once once this stuff is in place and it's it's good, they're going to come after your opinions next. Like, I don't think you understand. Like, this is not a partisan issue. This is this is a constitutional issue. So you have to let's be clear about what this actually means. This means your speech, too, even if you disagree with me on every political take that I have. Don't care. I still care about your constitutional right to speak that opinion. And this is being challenged. And this is how, why this case is so important. And it's so I, I believe that you're right. I think that anybody's going to get in there, especially with Jeff Landry at the helm. I, I think it's going to protect the case just fine. And, the, and also the entire teams that are behind this. It's not just those two. I mean, there's there's tons of people, as Tracy mentioned, that are behind this. So 
There's actually um, a, a plaintiff hiding in the, the audience here. Oh, awesome. Well, I'm glad for them being a plaintiff in this case because uh, this is a very, <laughs> very important landmark case. And we really, really need to make sure that we're paying attention to this, guys. I see that Congress people are now finally picking up on it. So that's cool. But the reason we wanted to do this, right, Tracy, was to make sure that we're not muddying the waters, that people are clear on what is actually happening here. And yeah, and it's important because it's going to get more nuanced as we go on. And I want everybody to be actually informed. Correct. So first of all, be informed on this. So on, on July 4th of this year, uh, Terry Doty issued the, the, temp, the in temporary injunction until the completion of the case. The case has merit. The government uh, appealed that to the Fifth Circuit uh, panel of judges. The panel actually came out, and I believe, if you, if you go read the opinion of the Fifth Circuit, now they gutted a lot of that stuff out um, that was put forth by Judge Doty. We can, we can kind of cover that. I've covered it in one of the other seven spaces that I've done on this. But if you want to go back and listen to those, those, those recordings are in my highlights uh, tab in my uh, profile. You can find them all there. That's why I number them, one through seven. or one. There's technically eight. But um, if you go through that, you can listen to it. But basically what happened was the Fifth Circuit... Not only did they issue an opinion, kind of gut out um, the the there was ten different there was ten different uh, rulings that the, that Terry Doty had made. They gutted everything out but number seven, and so basically the but the Fifth Circuit in that opinion, they actually went into great detail citing case law, like unbelievable case law. Basically, what they were doing were setting it up. It seemed like right, Tracy. It seemed like those that panel of judges wrote that opinion on the appeal so that it would be fast-tracked or at least be able to be litigated well in front of SCOTUS. That's what it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. So these, this Fifth Circuit, even though they've been kind of the babysitters on this case, and they have been the entire time, um, you know, they've been kind of watching out over Terry Doty's work, sending stuff back, back down to the lower court saying you need to work this out. And when he issued his opinion, there was an appeal. They said, okay, uh, this and this and this will take out, including CISA. We're going to take out this agency, that agency. We're going to leave in the White House. We're going to leave in the CDC. We're going to leave in you know, the government, but we're going to take out CISA. That's what Tracy was talking about. So then they revisited with the Fifth Circuit saying, you need to get CISA back in here. CISA is like the switchboard for censorship but between all offices of government, including NGOs. These were the guys. The CISA, which is under the Department of Homeland Security, uh, Jen Easterly, director of Homeland of, of CISA at, the, at this time, they were handling all the requests from all the NGOs. The Global Engagement Center, which if you weren't following the Twitter files or this case, Global Engagement Center was basically a hub for nine different governmental agencies to feed in censorship and you know banning and suspension requests. They then would feed that to CISA, and then CISA would directly switchboard with the social media companies to get things taken down. So CISA is at the center of all of this, to be honest with you. And so now CISA is back in. We just saw that ruling. When did we see that? Two two weeks ago, I think, Tracy, where they added CISA back in? Yep, and we were all taking a victory that lap. That was a victory lap. Now that one, because yep. we've had a lot of ups and downs in this case, but that was a victory lap because that's the big one. But now, as you pointed out, and now with SCOTUS's ruling that you just uh, showed, that now the, the, the injunction has a stay until spring of next year when they start taking up cases so that the government can still do that right now. So it's unfortunate. And the White House now, granted, will they do it? Because right now you still have open discovery. The case is still going on and this stuff can be subpoenaed and requested at any given time. So it, it, it'll be interesting to see what the government does about this. Yeah. And, you know, to that point, like a lot of people say, oh, well, they're not even going to listen to the stay once it is in place. And I keep on fighting them about that and saying, well, 
They they will, and that's because the social media companies are going to be subpoenaed as well. So they're going to be producing documents. There's no way they're going to get together to come up with what are they producing, what are they holding back, if they hold it. Like, they can't even, you know, keep their whistleblowers straight, let alone cross-contamination amongst, you know, non-party defendants, which is what the social media companies will basically be. Um, or non-party, not necessarily defendants, but non-parties to the lawsuit. And the social media companies have a vested interest in this lawsuit working out in our favor because otherwise they're acting as publishers and their Section 230 protection could be in jeopardy when it's out on display in a court of law like this. So it's super interesting. Now, at the same time as this is going on, you had mentioned there's another case. And yes, there is. So um, Health Freedom Louisiana and Jill Hines are suing the companies or the not-for-profits and NGOs like um, the Atlantic Council, Stanford Internet Observatory, and others who are doing the bidding of the government that the government thought was too egregious to do themselves. So the government was like, ah, I don't think we should censor this hard. We need to bring someone in from outside to do it for us, and then we'll just tell them what we want, and then they can do it because they're private, and it's not the same constitutionality uh, applicability. So they did that, and the problem for them is that these agencies are tax or these NGOs are taxpayer funded. So your tax dollars are going to these NGOs to build this policy, write these white papers, pressure social media companies. And I was going to do a thread on this case last week, but I got to be honest with you, it is wildly complicated legal theory that the um, agencies have thrown in there. To sum it up without getting too into the legalese, they're arguing that this needs to go to arbitration. It's so stupid the way they're doing this. They're saying that what's actually at issue is the is the terms of the contract between the end user and the social media company, not the actions of the NGO and the social media company. And it's an asinine, ass-backwards, nonsense, waste-of-time theory that they know is absurd on its face, but are pushing to try and likely financially drain the plaintiffs who are suing. So I'm trying to work on that, but trash, it's 800 pages, and it's it's just, it's a lot to distill down into some kind of a bite-sized morsel for people, but I'm hopefully going to have that out next week. Yeah, and if you need any help with that, obviously, you know that I'll help, because this is... Uh, yeah. Yes, please. Yeah, yes, yeah please. so I'll take a look at it with you. Maybe <laughs> we can uh, brainstorm a little bit and see how to attack it, because 800 pages can be done. Uh, I just got to do it right. So I'm going to go back on something you said, Tracy, just now, so that people understand what we're talking about when it comes to NGOs doing what the government can't do. Um, and actually, I, want, I would actually I'm going to play a couple clips so you guys can hear it out of their own mouths. So <clears throat> let's explain a little bit what, what actually was occurring with CISA. So CISA is the Cybersecurity Administration underneath the Department of Homeland Security, right? And essentially, <clears throat> the government is not allowed to basically remove millions of people from social media get their posts banned whatever it may be they're not allowed to do that and so they needed private sector solutions to kind of do that and, and this is where back then uh this is prior to the election was the election integrity partnership that was formed now this was formed by alex stamos uh and many others and this was kind of a, a go-between between cisa and a non-governmental office an ngo and connected with these universities. Because I have a few clips that I always play, and I think I'll play it again so people can really understand it. So this was actually a clip, it's about a minute long, and he kind of explains 
what what uh, EIP, which is the Election Integrity Partnership, that turned into the Virality Project, uh, and you know, partnering with the Stanford Internet Observatory. There's a lot of ex-CIA people that work in this in this kind of arena. Renee DeResta. It turns out Renee probably worked for the CIA maybe six months, but she her fingerprints are all over it everywhere. And Alex Stamos as well. And I have a couple clips I'm going to play. And they're they're actually telling you at an Atlantic Council meeting. It's called the 360 Open Summit. And they explain specifically how this non-government office coordinated with CISA to be kind of like the go-between or the band-aid to do what the government couldn't do to you and how they were able to leverage on these social media companies actually having, as we saw in the Twitter files, direct access to just doing it through the ticketing system called JIRA, J-I-R-A. And so let me just play this clip for you guys. Let me make sure my mic is on standard. Okay, perfect. Here, I'll play this so you guys can really understand it. And this is their own words. And then I'm going to get into the Kate Starbirds of the world and the out of, out of Washington State and how they're actually able to plot, graph, and bottleneck and stop posts from going viral before too many people reach it and how that happened. Like, they did all of these things. Give me one second. I'll play it. This is not because CISA didn't care about this information, but at the time, they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation is operating. So because of the feedback uh, and the ideas from this, uh, this group, um, we were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government cannot do themselves. The cooperation between government and tech platforms has been very effective in this. These institutions put together have probably read, what, 60 or 70 papers over the last 12 months um, talking about the outcome of those takedowns. I think the two challenges here are, one, how do we maintain this, right? The federal government wasn't prepared to identify and analyze election mis and disinfo. There was no clear federal lead to coordinate the work because the IC, of course, is rightly limited to a foreign focus, and the FBI also has very specific designations and limitations. CISA had created support, but had no real capability. There were unclear legal authorities, including very real First Amendment questions. There were unclear legal authorities, unclear legal authorities. So the last woman you heard was Renee DeResta. I always call her CIA Renee. Uh, but you heard the first guy speaking was Alex Stamos. So this is them kind of getting this set up. They're saying, hey, we need to get access to money. We need to understand legal theory and authority. We need to figure out what's legal, what's not. And then, then we can create a market around it and create this EIP and move forward. So, so far you've heard from Alex Stamos and Renee DeResta. Now this is where they blatantly tell you exactly what they were, what they were doing. There was a, a lack of capability around election disinformation. Um, this is not because CISA didn't care about disinformation, but at the time they lacked uh, both kind of the funding and the legal authorizations um, to go do the kinds of work that would be necessary to truly understand how election disinformation was operating. So because of the feedback uh, and the ideas from these, uh, this group, um, we were able to pull together pretty quickly a project between these four different institutions to try to fill the gap of the things that the government could not do themselves. Uh, there are kind of four major stakeholders that we operated with uh, that we worked beside at EIP. Uh, our partners in government, most particularly those in CISA DHS, but also in all the local and state governments with whom we operated with with the Election Integrity uh, Infrastructure ISAC. Uh, we worked with civil society groups such as the, uh, NA, uh, NAACP, uh, MITRE, Common Cause, uh, and the, the Healthy Elections Project that worked at both MIT and Stanford. 
Uh, and then we also worked with the major platforms, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, Reddit, Nextdoor, and the like. Um, in some of those cases, we had agreements for access to data. In other cases, we had to have individual analysts go work with them. So that sets the stage of the, when you ask who CISA is. Well, I think this explains it. And then who the EIP was, it turned into the Virali Project and how they use uh, CIA carve-outs, cutouts, NGOs, and universities to do the work that they could not do as the federal government themselves. And they, this is 100% blatantly explaining it. Now, what you can't see are the four major stakeholder groups that they considered, right? So the first was government. So you had the elections infrastructure, which is ISAC. You had CISA, and then you had the GEC, which is the Global Engagement Center. So once again, the Global Engagement Center was a hub for nine different governmental agencies that had censorship or suppression requests. They then would take through the Global Engagement Center hub and send it to CISA. CISA then would fire off and switchboard either directly to social media companies or they would use these NGOs to then contact these social media companies and take down content, take down users and platforms. Now, you had civil societies, which is the second major stakeholder group. These are just different organizations. You kind of went through the Belfer Center at Harvard. By the way, look at Belfer Center, by the way, the stuff that they're doing in this market right now, in this sector at Harvard. It's spooky. Belfer Center is no joke. Uh, platforms like Facebook, Twitter, Google, TikTok, looks like Reddit, Nextdoor, Discord, and Pinterest even. And then, of course, their fourth major stakeholder was the media, which they had no direct access to. So the media was actually left out of these, out of these NGO work. And that was done differently and i've exposed that we can talk about that another time it's not related to this case so real quick um also to keep in mind so you're you're wondering and, and tracy i'm going to come back and open a conversation again i just want to set this stage so people understand how important this case is so in october of 2018 uh case kate starbird who's out at washington state uh in the, in the state of washington washington university i believe uh essentially she they had created, so the EIP, so Kate Starbird with EIP, they had this like advanced like AI, monitoring AI, where it would actually be able to graph out the entire networks of people who would spread some narrative they, that they would call misinformation, which was, we know to be true. True information, right? It was just malinformation, basically information that they knew was true, but didn't want the public to hear, right? And... <clears throat> This allowed the EIP to actually be able to check every single step of the way of what they that they deemed to be a false narrative to systematically censor the entire belief systems at scale. So this is Kate Starbird in her own words working with EIP. So this is her explaining exactly how they were able to plot out uh, content and then know where to bottleneck it before it got out of control and they couldn't control it anymore. how um, this claim went viral. These are plots that we were using almost for every incident that we that we picked up from this collaborative group. Our team, every time we picked up an incident, we would plot it in this way so we could see how it went viral. And what these do, this is a cumulative graph um, that shows the cumulative spread of a particular kind of claim. And what it has is on the y-axis is how many times it, it's been shared, and on the x-axis is time. And what we do is we plot each tweet on this as a shape, depending on what kind of, like what tweet type it is, if it's a retweet or a quote tweet or whatever. And we size each tweet by the size of the audience of that account. And what this allows us to do is some, not always, sometimes things take off with the random account somehow, but often you'll see these high um, follower accounts change the, the, change the trajectory of a tweet, helping it go viral. So it allows us to see who is really influential in the spread 
of um, in the spread of a of a claim. And so um, and then so his original post was repeatedly retweeted, remixed, and reframed as it spread through other uh, influential social media accounts and right and uh, right wing media outlets. Um, there we have like uh, an account of uh, Tim Cast. I think really sort of changes the trajectory, and he's a American citizen journalist um, and a political commentator. Uh, who actually gained influence through his coverage of Occupy Wall Street, but he's now aligned with right-wing populism in the United States. Another influential account in this incident belonged to the Gateway Pundit, a hyper-partisan media outlet that repeatedly spread false or misleading claims of voter fraud. In fact, they I think they have something like 40 different incidents. Their domain is cited in our data of 40 different claims of, of voter fraud of different kinds. Um, and uh, eventually this false claim was amplified by the Twitter account of President Trump's son as well, which is a common kind of piece of the trajectory. Often it would eventually reach some of his closest allies and, and, and family members and, and be promoted from there. So online participants repeatedly activated to produce and spread information that sowed doubt in the election, highlighting irregularities um, and exa exaggerating this, the impact of small issues like stolen mail and spreading false, like absolute falsehood. So what she's actually got here on this graph was a uh, this was a specific content that was that she's talking about was ballots in a dumpster in Sonoma, in Sonoma County. And originally some small account, like two or three thousand followers, tweeted it out with some photos. Elijah Schaefer picked it up. Then it looks like Ian Miles Chong picked it up. Daily Mail picked it up. Tim Pool picked it up. Gateway Pundit. And then once it got past kind of like Daily Mail into Tim Pool territory and Gateway Pundit ter territory, it would just shoot up to the extent of reach and impressions. And so they try to bottleneck things, or they would try to bottleneck things around the smaller uh, viewer accounts or do it around Elisha Schaefer and Still Gray, which is Ian Miles Chong in there before it got to Tim Pool because they said that any Tim Pool got a hold of it, then the trajectory would completely change. And so they were, this is what they were mapping out. This is how they were conversing with uh, social media companies to get this content taken down before too many people saw it. Yes, Tracy, I saw you go to Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I just wanted to introduce Jill from Health Freedom Louisiana, one of the plaintiffs on the Missouri v. Biden lawsuit, as well as the um, the other lawsuit I was talking about um, against EIP, etc. Jill, welcome. I'd love to hear hear your thoughts and what do you think so far? Oh, hello, Tracy and Trash. Tell me, I, I'm afraid I don't know your name. Your it's name. Aaron. You can call me Aaron, but Trash is fine. It's funny because okay. it Aaron. makes everybody do that. I love that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so nice to meet you. Tracy speaks highly of you. So, And thank you uh, for your coverage of this case. Tracy's been phenomenal. It's so nice to see other people, um, you know, doing um, excellent work in regarding, you know, um, giving accurate information about it. Um, but yeah, it's been a fascinating, surreal experience to be a part of this. Um, we were invited by Solicitor General Liz Mural to be um, to write a declaration in regards to the lawsuit um, that they filed last May, and it has just been an extremely surreal experience um, filing the the separate plaintiff lawsuit within CLA, Janine Yunus and John Vecchioni, that fabulous organization. And then, of course, being approached to um, do the Heinz v. Stamos lawsuit that you guys are um, speaking about in regards to Alex Stamos, um, Stanford Internet Observatory, all of these third-party um, actors involved in censorship. So I'm excited to see how this all plays out. Our attorneys did file a response to the government's um, 
motion to dismiss Hines v. Stamos. They just filed that last week. So you guys should be able to to find that as well. So yeah, we're, we're fighting on it. Those lawyers are badass and I love them so Me much. Too. Just reading that. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I was fist pumping throughout the entire thing. Just yeah, saying. me too. I, I'm I'm included, you know, in the email chain between all of them. And it is extremely exciting to see how they work and how their mind works. And of course, you know, John Sauer, the incredible um, former solicitor general for the state of Missouri, who is now contracted as the special assistant attorney general with the state of Louisiana, is and just phenomenal. I mean, he is uh, just a, a force of nature in and of himself. So to see his mind working and leading this team on this is just incredible. We're blessed to have him. Yeah. He's no joke either. I mean, you've seen, you've heard <laughs> him trash, right? Oh yeah. John Sauer. Oh, he's a, he's a beast. I wish they would have used him more when he was up on Capitol Hill, but such, such <laughs> yep. life. Me too. And he was amazing too. You know, I had the, the honor and privilege of sitting in on the Fauci deposition last November. And I remember uh, texting friends, um, watching him work and just telling him, uh, pardon my language, that he was just bitch slapping the, the governor's, the government's attorneys during that, that deposition. It was, it was really fun to watch. And of course, I have to mention, you know, our amazing uh, governor-elect Jeff Landry was in that deposition with Fauci too. And I just love to let people know that he sat there across from Fauci with um, Robert F. Kennedy's book, The Real Anthony Fauci, all sticky noted in front of him on the table across from Anthony Fauci. So we're really blessed to have Jeff Landry on our side in the state of Louisiana as well. Uh, Jeff Landry, uh, Jeff Landry's amazing. Uh, I love that guy, and he's so unassuming, right? He, he's, yes. you know, he's got he's a good old boy Cajun accent, just sitting there talking. Yeah. But then when you listen to him, you're like, my God, this man is sharp, sharp as a tack. Like he, you know, and he knows his business, right, Tracy? I mean, he knows his business. He does. And if I can hijack this for a second, Jill, if you can speak to, can you tell people what your group was doing and the harm that it caused you being censored like this and what you tried to accomplish? Yeah. And, you know, you worked around it all and you've still done some absolutely amazing things, but speak to that for sure, us. Sure, absolutely. So we actually started Health Freedom Louisiana um, before COVID hit, we start, we formed our, our, our business in the summer of 2019 um, because we heard a rumor that um, there was going to be legislation introduced to remove our exemption for vaccine requirements for school attendance here in the state of Louisiana. So we uh, formed our organization then. And then, of course, COVID hit about six months later. And honestly, I don't think I've had a, um, a day off work since. But um, we uh, really kind of um, geared towards opposing mandates, not just vaccine mandates, but mask mandates for school children. And then we kind of started um, another grassroots organization to help reopen our state in April of 2020 called Reopen Louisiana, where we tried to engage people who weren't already aware of the risks to vaccine exemptions. Um, so, and that kind of morphed into, of course, the election conversation. So when they approached us about, um, you know, be, writing a declaration for the lawsuit, we were 
We were touching on everything that this lawsuit um, speaks to, not just the vaccine mandates, but the the mass mandates, uh, government overreach. We talked about election integrity, uh, the votes, the you know the 2020 election. So we had so much to bring to the table as far as you know the harms that um, government censorship had had caused to us. The very first hit on our reopen Louisiana account that caused so much um, damage to not only our credibility, but to our, our reach was an ask for, you know, the citizens of the state to contact the governor about the mask mandate. And we got hit in, with a community standards um, violation, I believe. And um, it took our reach. We were looking, we were kind of tracking our analytics because we were we were really agitating the governor. Like we had a great time just kind of countering the nonsense that was coming out of the governor's office and our department of health. So we were very antagonistic to him and it, and it really, um, it garnered us a lot of support. So we were tracking our analytics on Facebook and saw that our reach within a month's time had been about 1.3 to 1.4 million people, which is basically a quarter of the population of the state of Louisiana. And after that first really significant community standard to that one request for people to reach out and contact the governor and ask him to rescind the mass mandate for children, our reach was taken down to like nothing. It was like posting in a black hole. We couldn't, we couldn't contact people. And it was like months later when people were starting to engage with our account, one person asked, asked us, they said, where did you guys go? And we were like, we didn't go anywhere, but you just couldn't see us. It was, it was so disheartening. It was demoralizing. And as we spoke about in in, um, our declaration, or one of our more recent declarations is it really caused us to self-censor. And that in and of itself is a form of, of censorship. So not only was our, our speech imposed, but our ability to engage the public, to engage the, the government, which is another uh, constitutionally protected First Amendment right. So that's how we got involved with it. And that's how it's impacted our business. Unbelievable. It's just, it, you know, you were you were. It's the the biggest thing to come out of the Fifth Circuit. One of the biggest things that people overlook, I think, is that self-censorship mm-hmm. statement. You know, when you're self-censoring, it's also censorship. If you're thinking three times about if you can post what you want to say and have to worry about being dinged for it or having your voice taken from right. you, that also is included under the First Amendment. And that is so big and has ramifications far outside of just this case, Jill. So you guys are really making history. I I can't emphasize enough how surreal it is to be a part of this and the magnitude of this case and the significant harm that censorship has caused. I mean, granted, it's it's suppression of speech, but it it really has caused an an innumerable, innumerable amount of deaths because people were denied um, life-saving information. Um, and so it does, it has so much, so many ramifications and I'm very hopeful of, of, of a positive outcome eventually. Awesome. Awesome. Well, and, and Jill, I, I think 
So I'm glad that you've explained exactly what happened to you, uh, because that's not an uncommon thing. I mean, if you guys look at the list of plaintiffs, you can get a go a mile long. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure there's many people in this space that maybe ran communities or groups or had Instagram pages or Twitter accounts. I know I did. I've been taken down more times than anything. And I am mm -hmm. so receipt driven, non conjecture type person. <laughs> I just am yeah. I'm just like presenting information. And so for me to be taken down constantly, that is that malinformation they're talking about. But what you explained is what happened in all different sectors, right? So it wasn't just the health ramifications. This was geopolitical ramifications. This was elections ramifications. This is representation of the public. This was the subversion of the constitution and perversion of it. And, and this is, this is the, this is going to have generational ramifications of the censorship that occurred specifically within health, within information uh, sphere, bad information, making it, making, getting astroturfed and lifted up where truthful information was being suppressed and, and removed from the public discourse. We can't even begin to understand. This is why I say all the time, people are like, okay, aren't you being hyperbolic? When I say, this is by far the most important civil liberties case that I, that I will probably ever see in my generation. I hope to ever have to see, I'll put it that way. But this, at this point in my 42 years of life, this is by far the biggest civil liberties case that has ever come forward. And, and uh, we're, we're in this fight. So I really appreciate you coming in, Jill, and I'm glad you're here and, Thanks for explaining that to us. But so looking forward, um, what else, what, what, what kind of other things are being talked about within the group of plaintiffs here? If you have kind of uh, access with the team. Uh, sure. Well, I know there are requests to join Heinz v. Stamos, which is really exciting because it gives, uh, gives it some more legitimacy, if you will. Um, I think there was um, discussion of, OAN um, or AON, America's Online News, one of those news networks was um, has requested to join. So I'm not sure if that's official yet or not. But um, but yeah, I think it's it's going to get bigger. Uh, I'm not the only um, plaintiff anymore. I think it was myself and just Jim Hoft originally. So uh, the list of plaintiffs is growing. And also, this is um, a class action. So it's not, again, it just like um, Missouri v. Biden is not for my sole benefit or the plaintiff's sole benefit. This is for the benefit of individuals who um, have been harmed, you know, by suppression of speech over the last three plus years. So it should be interesting to see how this comes out. I know the goal is not to make money off of this. Our goal is to make these uh, third party uh, censors uh, to, to, to feel the hurt, you know, that we have experienced over the last several years to make a financial um, statement in regards to their business policies. And, and when you came up, I was just discussing Alex Stamos and the EIP and these and Kate Starbirds of the world. And originally Terry Doty's decision on the Missouri v. Biden case came down. And <clears throat> when he came out, he was actually inhibiting part of the part of these 10 different uh, line items that he put out was inhibiting uh, these NGOs and these third party university groups, not only from continuing, but then not being able to change their name and creating another group. So it was actually uh, it was actually uh, prohibiting additional groups from being created, not just the ones that were mentioned, like Stanford Internet Observatory, EIP Virality Project, the Kate Starbirds of the world. Uh, a lot of these people, they were named in that in that Missouri v. Biden decision. But it also inhibited from creating future groups, which is what we're going to see moving forward and experiencing because they're, they're now pushing this into the universities. You know, unfortunately, what was not mentioned was Harvard and the Belfer Center and many other uh, 
this is censorship is a big business now. It is a big industry and it's a big game and there's a lot of money in it. And so they don't they wanted to inhibit future future growth opportunities for creating these divisions. Uh, so hopefully, correct me if I'm wrong, Tracy, maybe you can answer this. I think now that SCOTUS has the temporary injunction uh, in front of them, that means that the original Terry Doty decision, not the Fifth Circuit's appeal, is what's going to be challenged at SCOTUS. Is that correct? No, I think it's what the Fifth Circuit has <sighs> ruled and decided. Well, I, yeah. I don't know of a legal mechanism where they can get these people included back in, but they were cut out. Now, CISA has been added, which is a win. But these NGOs, I believe, are cut out of it still then at this point. Yes, which is why the the, the lawsuit that Jill is talking about, the Heinz v. Stamos one that I told you, um, we, we briefly discussed that that running in tandem is so important, just so happens to be also in front of Judge Doty. Yep. And that's why I was bringing that up. It was a kind of a, a, a lawyer thing where it's like, I know the answer to the question. <laughs> that's why I wanted to bring it up, Tracy, because it was like, <laughs> I was wanting to point out how this case is different and why it's just as important. So perfect. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, I don't know, Tracy, if you had something you wanted to add on to that or. No, I just, I, I, um, I think we're, we're at the juncture now where we're going to, maybe Jill can answer this because it's something I don't know. Do we get a look at ongoing discovery or is it only when there's a motion filed that we will get to see any of deposition transcripts and things like that? I, I know I only get to see it when it's been filed. So I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm the wrong person to ask that question. You're lucky. <laughs> if I, if you're lucky is what you are. I would be, I would be popcorning it up every time we can. We got a filing, but like, you know, I, I mentioned in the thread I did about SCOTUS um, trash and I'm never calling you by your first name ever. I'm just saying, you know, um, I, I mentioned in there a, a portion like the government likes to lie and exaggerate about a lot of different things. And so when they were doing deposition of Anthony Fauci and all the plaintiffs, they were granted deposition of the Fifth Circuit was coming in because the government was going to the Fifth Circuit and saying, hey, we should we shouldn't have to. Um, you know, answer to these questions. These people are too important and too busy. And the Fifth Circuit would say, oh, go one level below them. And if you can't get what you want, fine. And just as, just as Judge Doughty wanted this stuff to be available to the public, um, the deposition transcripts and things like that. And the government was fighting against it, saying that, you know, oh, they're all being threatened. Um, the Surgeon General's being threatened. There's threats of violence against their lives. If you put make this public, then they're going to face a greater harm. And the judge basically wrote back and said, first of all, show me, which they couldn't produce anything, literally zero. Second of all, if you're not doing anything wrong, your deposition will be like watching paint dry on the wall. So what harm could it potentially bring to you to have it be made public? If anything, it will help you to have these depositions be made public. And he released them all, save the people's home addresses, not like any redactions whatsoever. And the government really was pissed off about that. So if there's like, you can get sneaky. Like I got the transcript of the hearing that I attended in Louisiana and Jill, get ready because I'm going to be down there quite a bit. Once this case goes to court, like literally in trial. Um, and I was able to get that because it was attached as an exhibit to a filing that they made in the case unrelated. So you can get things sometimes that they include as exhibits, even if the motion they're filing doesn't necessarily 
have anything to do with it. If they cite from it once, they have to include it when they file. This is why I love um, following your work, Tracy. I'm learning. I learned so much about this case that I'm involved in from you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's crazy. It's true. <laughs> well, we I mean, obviously, when you're running, you know, you, you've got your you've got your community, you've got your group and you guys have many other causes. And there's only so many times so many hours in the day. Uh, other people like Tracy and then. Myself would kind of get in there and get it in the weeds and say, okay, what can we get? What can we find? And then bring it forward. So uh, it's me not having children and <laughs> being able to dig as well. So, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm, I'm glad you joined us. Well, thanks so much. Thanks for allowing me to speak. If you have any other questions, I'm here. Oh, absolutely. Go ahead, Tracy. Well, I mean, just basically like, you know, that's where we're at right now is that the case is being misreported on really almost everywhere. Um, of course, A.G. Bailey and A.G. Landry have to say it's a win, and it is in many ways a win. Like we normally say, this is more nuanced than just a yes or no. But at this point, just know the entire case is not in front of the Supreme Court. There is a stay on this injunction until they do hear the case when they bring up session again. And there's a lot more to it than just what's being reported out there. And that's what eats me alive is that I see people and that's like kind of the, the purpose that serves trash is it gets people super excited about stuff only to then be disappointed later. And it kind of taints the well, so to speak. And so just, you know, obviously I'm not saying I'm the only one doing any work on this. I'm not. But people need to really take the time like like Trash has and, and name and others to get to know what's really happening in this case before they start reporting on it. Otherwise, we're going to have an uninformed populace when it comes to what's going on. Right. And then unreasonable expectations. Right. Like it, and, and it, once you once you can have the right expectations and you can kind of see how this is going to play out and navigate, I think that's where the real analysis begins. And then for a lot of people, this might be too in the weeds for some. But I would still encourage people who do have platforms that do want to cover this case, at least make sure that you're setting the right expectations. Like you, like you said, like, yes, I think that Jeff Landry and, and uh, Andrew Bailey should be going out on their social media claiming that, you know, you know, taking a victory lap. They're working their butts off and any progress in this case and then having every level of appeals court saying there's merit in this case. This case will move forward on merit. By saying that, that is a victory. It's just a matter of getting through motions uh, when Fifth Circuit cuts out CISA and many other groups and then brings them back in. It just needs to be able to tamper expectations, say, okay, this is actually what's happening with this case. It's very important. And if you don't know anything about it, let's go back and let's look at these individual groups' names. Start with the plaintiffs. Start with the defendants. And then look at some of the stuff that was in early exhibits in the case and part of discovery. And that's Missouri v. Biden, of course. But this, uh, I believe it's Heinz v. Stamos. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, that case is going to be huge because that's the NGOs, right? That's the Band-Aids. The, these are the ones that were doing extra constitutional work for the government that the government couldn't do themselves. This is very, very important because this is where a lot of money and the tools that were being developed to do this out of the private and you know public education sector are far more efficient than anything the U.S. government's going to create, right? And this is where the massive censorship was coming from. Now, there were requests. We saw this. I mean, we saw like in the Missouri v. Biden case, Rob Flaherty, who was the White House director of uh, electronic communications, being the absolute bully in Silicon Valley from the White House saying, you need to take this down. Why isn't this done? Why isn't it enough done? I mean, he was 
all over the place. And then Andy Slavitt as well, who's also named the case, was doing the same thing. A lot of these people like Jen Psaki, he was out there on the, you know, in front of the in front of the American people saying we are absolutely doing this with social media companies and we are going to get the stuff taken down. And then she's trying to fight to not have to be deposed. That's a whole other hilarious story. Go back to my previous spaces on that, because that's a great story. Matter of fact, Tracy, I think you covered that in Uncovered DC. Yeah. Yeah, I did. I actually took the time to read the transcript of the hearing in Virginia because it was so good. (laughs) People like people don't understand. I read the entire thing out loud. It took me like an hour, but it was worth every minute of it. So real quick, what she's talking about in Virginia. So Jen Psaki thought she was going to be slick. This this Missouri v. Biden case is happening down in Louisiana in front of Terry Doty. They were wanting to depose her. And so she tried to fight it by by appealing to a court in Virginia. <laughs> and this judge was none too happy about Jen Psaki getting involved, getting a court in Virginia involved. Could you kind of explain why that's funny? Because I think the judge was pretty funny in this. Sorry, Tracy, I think you're you're on, you're muted. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was hysterical because I believe, if I'm not mistaken, her attorney was Jeannie Ree. Yeah, that's correct. So just to get... Yes. So this is the swamp of the swamp here. Okay. The swamp of the swamp. Now, just to give some background on this, because it is wildly entertaining. They, Jen Psaki left. And then the government was claiming that they didn't have any information at all about why Jen Psaki said what she said from the podium, which is a cornerstone of this lawsuit. And they wanted to depose her. She left the press secretary that took over. They claimed ignorance. There's nothing. There's nothing returnable. We can't give you anything. So then they they started petitioning to bring Jen Psaki in and interview her because clearly if nobody else knows anything, the only person that can answer to who told her to say those things from the podium is herself. You know, there was a water cooler discussion or whatever. She's the only one who's going to know. So she, as a private citizen, was fighting that deposition request, saying she's a private citizen now. She shouldn't have to come in and testify to something that happened as when she was in her role as the press secretary. And because the plaintiff or the defendants are sued in, as an office, not in their individual capacity, what they try to do is they try to remove the people that were in those seats and put new heads in. I think almost every single person that was named in here has now resigned or left or has been transferred. So there was like 19 swaps of people within the White House office of the press, within the CDC, within the the Surgeon General's office. So they'll like shuffle people or fire them so that they don't have to testify to what they know. Um, So that's what Jen Psaki was basically doing in this instance. She goes into this Virginia court with her high-powered swamp attorneys, gets in front of this judge asking this judge to step in and stop her from having to testify and be deposed. And the judge smacked them around to the point where Ree was left a stuttering mess. I mean, it was, it was, you would never expect it from a Virginia judge ever. He basically said, I don't understand. You're saying that you, it's going to take you too much time to prepare to be deposed, but you're also saying you have nothing to answer for. So what is the time that it's going to take you? What is the the, you know, the personal um, funds that you're going to have to use to prepare yourself for this if you're saying you have nothing to say. And he just basically caught them with their pants down, and it was glorious. It's one of my favorite stories, and that happened back in, I want to say, December, January of this year, because there was a deadline coming up in January for the Missouri v. Biden case where the government had to produce either, you know, depositions of the key people or give a good reason why they would have somebody else be deposed in their place 
Uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy comes to mind. He was one that was replaced by somebody else in the deposition. All right, U.S. Surgeon General. That that might, I mean, I I don't agree that he should have been left out, but there's an argument I guess you could make, I suppose, but not really. But uh, so that there was only a few key people um, that were replaced in this to be deposed. But they had they had a they had a deadline in January, and the government had X amount of days to supply over twenty thousand pieces of evidence and depositions um, <clears throat> on behalf of the plaintiffs. They had they had very short time to do this and then and then the plaintiffs had a very short time to go through it so to keep in mind once again let me just set the table what we're talking about here we are not talking about the whole case that there's ongoing discovery subpoenas and requests right now by the by the legal teams but what happened was they had to get this done quick so they could get a temporary injunction put in place which would enjoin all of the defendants from communicating with social media companies to censor americans constitutionally protected illegal speech the injunction then was supposed to be in place while the case played out. This case is going to take a year or two to play out. But the ongoing discovery during that time is going to be huge. And the committees uh, that are up on Capitol Hill, once they pick a speaker again, that's another space from another time. I've been holding eight-hour spaces on that. I don't need to discuss it here. Once those committees fire back up <clears throat> and uh, keep going, because they are still working in the background. They're still sending subpoenas. They're still uh, requesting uh, appearances and depositions. But anyway, as they gain that stuff and the discovery in the case, more is going to come out about what was going on, what's happening, and there's going to be a lot to discover. But this injunction is very important because it stops them now, and it stops them while we have some serious problems going on in the world, and including an election coming up in 2024. So that is the gravity of this, but that's why they had to do an expedited uh, injunction hearing to get all this discovery quickly so they could prove their case. And so far, the only thing that's included in the case that SCOTUS has seen, that the Fifth Circuit has seen, they're all saying what you have here now is enough to warrant merit on this case moving forward. We just need to make sure that we're, we're enjoining the right parties from preventing them from suppressing America's constitutionally legal speech. Yeah, the limited discovery part is something that really needs to be harped upon. And as a matter of fact, CISA was actually caught with their pants down withholding discovery, and they were able to figure that out based off of other um, documents that were were provided in another way. And and so and and judge the judge himself actually stepped forward and said, hey, guys, remember, this is limited discovery. There's going to be a lot more where this came from. Like he even said it. He is a rock star, man. I swear, like if I, he's I wish he could be SCOTUS like SCOTUS nominated, but he's he's a little he's in his 60s. So they probably wouldn't go there, but he deserves it because he's amazing. I mean, a patriot through and through. No, he really is. And I highly recommend going back. Like I said, go to Tracy's page. Um, she's, she's, she's done mega threads on this. It includes the direct deposition, the emails, a lot of the exhibits that they had. It, it's all written in the transcripts of the case, in the filings. You can read it all there. It's all there. Um, you can also, if you want to go back and listen to it, if you have a long drive or flight, I've had about three to four hour spaces on this covering exactly what the case is, what the updates are. You can find all that in my highlights tab. And of course, if you want to find her threads quicker by finding those recordings, I've obviously also included those uh, in those recordings. And if you go down to the chat right now, matter of fact, and thank you guys for sharing the space, 68 reposts with 64 likes. Thank you guys very much. Um, I actually included both her original update and then two days ago, she threaded the SCOTUS as a grant cert. So you can go through and actually read the analysis, read part of the case. 
uh, the opinions of the judges, the dissenting, the, the dissent of the other three judges, and kind of understand where we're at now and how this sits with SCOTUS. So then moving forward, when you see people reporting on this or you see somebody tweeting about this or someone's covering content on their YouTube channel, you'll be able to actually know what the facts are to make sure that they're held account, that you understand, because you'll understand exactly what's happening versus what maybe sounds good on an audio recording. So, but, uh, yeah, yeah, you've done, you've done Yaman's work on this. I mean, it's, it's, it's been such a great thing when you started doing this. I literally was jumping up and down. <laughs> uh, thank God. Thank God. Someone else is talking about this. I was screaming because I was censored off of Twitter when I, I was covering this. The only reason anybody knew about my work outside of that was Citizen Free Press, God bless him, was sharing my stuff and aggregating it out for me, which was a godsend when I was censored. Um, so it, it's awesome. Do you take questions? Tra- yeah, of course. Yeah, if there's any questions, sure. Yeah, like if anyone has any question about any part of this at all, we can answer basically anything for you. So James actually had a question down in the chat. I think we've addressed it, but James, you're actually up on stage. So if you want to ask your question or questions, please feel free. Great. Yeah, no, uh, thank you. And and thank you guys so much for doing this. Uh, so I, I do have a question, which you can get ready for um, Health Freedom Louisiana. Um, so I've been doing content monitoring on one of the major uh, social listening, social monitoring platforms that are out there. And uh, so one of our bigger U.S. Senate launches Right. I, I got to see all of their um, reach and frequency for what they've been posting uh, over the last two months. And I have to say, and I, and I call this to this intention and, I, and, I'm, and I'm talking to them, so I'm not you know, talking out of school yet. But, um, you know, they had a, a tremendous amount of traffic coming from Twitter and you could see the virality of their posts on Twitter and uh, now X. Right. But every single other platform, you know, and particularly Facebook, where they have an audience that's comparable to the size of their audience on X, is is still absolutely being just shut down, right? I mean, it's it's almost like analog, where it's just like, you know, they post something, you know, they might get 20 or 30, you know, likes to it and, and some engagement. And then that's it. It's like, it's off. So I was wondering if um, if Health Freedom Louisiana... Now, you mentioned people saying like, hey, you know, like, where did you guys go? <laughs> um, how do you see the health of your uh, of your online reach, right, your digital voice right now? And do you think it's still being impacted by some of these, you know, other organizations? So while, you know, the government is shut down and thank God, you know, the size of the digital hub part of it is shut down. Are the NGOs potentially still doing uh, censorship and, you know, and, and how do you see it impacting your virality, your online voice like right now? Oh, yes. Uh, well, our main um, prior to, you know, all of the the freedom that Twitter now offers, our, our main social media platform was Facebook and we still don't have. Um, good engagement at all on Facebook. You know, we had two closed groups that were taken completely offline um, and we moved to a third closed group. But for probably the last six months to probably even a year, I could not be seen, like literally seen. None of my posts were seen. 
in in our groups and and for um a short amount of time i couldn't even do live video posts in our groups i couldn't reply to comments so yeah nothing has changed really on facebook twitter um i know tracy kind of alludes to this too but there's still some restrictions on twitter um i we don't get an engagements that other accounts do with, um, you know, not that we have a significant following on Twitter, maybe less than 2000 people, but still we don't get any kind of, um, it doesn't feel like an organic type of engagement on any social media, but definitely not on Facebook. Uh, we still feel some, um, some in inhibition on, uh, on Twitter that others I think have um, been freed from. Uh, so there's something still in, their system that recognizes what we do and what we talk about, uh, our repost, especially on vaccine topics, on harms and uh, associated risk and stuff like that are still, um, there's not a lot of engagement on that. Um, but yeah, and even on Instagram, Instagram seems to be one of uh, our fastest growing um, reaches, uh, but still it's, we're very hesitant to post from particular people um, and on particular topics. Like there's, you know, some reels that we won't reshare that have um, direct uh, um, 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 any kind of direct um, uh, directly associates harms with vaccines. Uh, we just know it's it's very very risky. So we I tend to repost and reshare a, a lot more on Twitter, just knowing that I won't necessarily get like a community standard, but I know I won't have the engagement that I do on other platforms like um, uh, Instagram, for example. And we've actually moved from an, a website because we know we're suppressed on Google as well. Uh, so we've moved to writing our, our blogs and um, newsletters on Substack, where we know we have a little bit more freedom of speech. Um, but again, that um, that website in and of itself is, is censored on, say, Twitter and Facebook. So right now it's a no-win situation for us. <laughs> we've never really been and never really intentionally monetized our business. We only try to make back the expenses that we incur. Um, myself and my three other business owners are volunteers. We do this voluntarily. Um, but we do have costs that we incur, like our, our gas money and whatnot to the, the capital. But we've never really been able to monetize that. We had an affiliation with the Total Twins. Nobody ever saw those posts. It's just been really ridiculously difficult engaging with the public um, talking about what we talk about. I think that's a great question. And then kind of expand on that a bit. So I've experienced this as well. It seems there, there are keywords that are still within the algorithm. Uh, there are ghost bands that are going on, and I don't know who's doing it, whether that's the NGOs, whether it's Twitter themselves. Maybe they had a moderating team at that time because shortly after I received a ghost band, and I'll explain what that was. What happened was, if you guys know me, I, I put together a lot of threads. I do a ton of threading. I don't do a, I mean, I don't do a whole lot of singular posts unless it's just something simple or a retweet. But like when I put out content, it's typically in thread format. And what the ghost band did was it did not ban it didn't prevent people from seeing the original starter of the thread, but what it did was any subsequent reply would say post not available. If I replied to anybody, it would immediately say post not available. So I couldn't reply to anybody. I could only tweet and all of the threads, all the work that I had done was completely gutted out. 
And then shortly after that, Elon went in and fired uh, the moderating team. If you guys remember this, this was a couple months ago. And so we, I don't know if it's algorithm, the algorithmic code, the, the ghost code that Elon talks about is still in there. If there were bad actors, if NGOs still have access, I'm sure that there are people who do have access in other places. Sorry, our UPS truck was really loud. Um, there are people in other places that uh, probably still have access, it seems like, but there is a lot of old code. And if you guys remember back when Dave Rubin actually went to uh, San Francisco Twitter headquarters and he did an interview with Elon, one of the things that he said post that interview was that Elon has, has tried to figure out whether or not he's going to burn down the entire code and rebuild it. You can't really do that, but that's what they need to do because there's so much stuff in it. But I think what they're doing is actually building a, a, a subsequent platform and probably will merge it over eventually because this code is just so it, there's so much stuff in there that people are still getting banned. So keywords, um, there's still throttling that happens if if you have X amount of users or followers. I've noticed when stuff like got picked up by people with millions of followers and they're retweeting it, it would just go absolutely nuclear and then it would just stop. It would completely stop. And they always stopped around. 1500 1700 likes and then the impressions would just die off you could see it in the analytics even something that i had that broke through that got 1.3 million impressions it was five times the engagement of anything that i've seen that has quadruple the impressions so something is still within the code that i'm even being throttled even when something takes off so just to explain that a little bit more that's what i see that's happening on twitter right now so again i think a lot of this is going to come out and i'm hoping elon will play ball but you know it's always a wait and see, not a not a trust. But I hope that explains a little bit more too, James. It's definitely happening, one hundred percent. Jen, your co-host, go ahead, and then Robert joined. Yeah, no, that. Yeah, that's fantastic. No, I just want to say thank you so much, and and thank you to the plaintiff. Uh, amazing work. God bless. Yeah, absolutely. If you guys are not following uh, Health Freedom Louisiana, please consider a follow. Try to let's try to get their content out there, get their reach further on X. This is the least censored platform, but it is still not perfect. But Instagram and Facebook, I don't even go there anymore. There's no point. I'll get banned and just for posting a meme. So it's, it's really no point. But uh, follow everybody here on the panel. Jen, your co-host, go ahead. I'm glad to see Mr. Bose joined us as well. Good to see you, Robert. But go ahead, Jen. Yeah, I just want to say thank you to Health Freedom and Tracy for all you know you guys are doing with this case. Um, you know, I just want to echo something you guys were saying about, you know, the reach and the censorship. Like back in 2020, when we were doing all the election stuff, like we literally watched how your reach, like when we were sending out emails or we were, you know, trying to get Twitter posts out at the time, like you would see how you would go from getting all these likes, all these retweets to all of a sudden you said one thing and it dropped. Right. And, and what they would do is they wouldn't even warn you. Right. You would you wouldn't even know that you weren't reaching anybody and you were completely siloed. And, and the effect that had on the election was unbelievable. Right. The effect that had on covid was unbelievable, because if people would have actually known the facts of what was actually happening, you know, they've taken polls after of like, oh, if you would have known what Biden was doing or if the Hunter Biden laptop was real, would that have changed your vote? And overwhelmingly, people say, yeah, that would have changed my vote. The fact if I would have known, you know, Hunter was out there doing what he was doing. Right. But they a they changed the story and said it was completely false. And then every time you tried to post something, you know, it, it, it was completely gone. And then when uh, Mickey Willis was launching uh, his video, Plandemic, we were helping with, you know, trying to get the video out there. 
And we watched how we were sending it in our DMs to people being like, oh, get this video out there. Like, share this video. You know, we need to get it out there. And it was disappearing out of the DMs, right? So it wasn't that it was just the tweets that were being censored. It was your DMs that were being censored and stuff was being completely taken out um, and people weren't realizing it. So the lengths to which they did, and then like Trash pointed out, that they had to outsource this taking away of our constitutional rights to these NGOs and, and companies that didn't give a shit if they were going against the Constitution, right? The government couldn't be seen as doing it. But yeah, let's hire these guys. It's great. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to point that out. Thanks, Trash. And uh, Robert, good to see you. Hey, folks. Uh, Tracy, great work. Jay Trash, Jennifer, name. I got a, qu a question about the evidence in the case and what happens to it now that it's being considered at Supreme Court. It seems like I, what I heard, there was many, many volumes of terabytes of data that were produced in the case in Missouri v. Biden, like emails between government agents and the, te and the tech platforms and the so social media platforms. That's really tangible evidence of, of um, collusion and control effectively like judge Doty said this the social media companies were in fact the government right so but the but the the email evidence uh is that going to be open source so other people can look at it so that you know we can find out specific communications between them i mean the algorithms are, are kind of separate that's i mean it's it's the algorithms where lots of censorship happens but it might not be as tangible to a judge to say, oh my gosh, this is a specific instance of an email sent to suppress some particular you know, uh, election information or whatever. What, what's gonna happen with the evidence? Yeah, the evidence is all available. The emails, the documentation, everything has been put into the record and is referenceable and available, which is one of the reasons why Gorsuch, Alito, and um, Thomas said they're, they haven't even read the record in this case because it's voluminous and it is very extensive and it is clear cut. So if you wanted to see some of that, I can actually, if you go to my pinned tweet and scroll down, it's all available. Everything's there as well as a link to the docket, Robert. So you can actually go in and look at around July, I don't know, mid-June, early July for some of the stuff that you want to see. Um, but it's it's all included. Yes. Excellent. We'll do. So the links would have all the all the materials that were disclosed in discovery. Yes. And as well as all of the depositions that were taken from uh, I believe it was six or seven deposed in this. They deposed Elvis Chan of the FBI, Anthony Fauci, um, Waldo, who was v Vivek Murthy's underling. Um, I forget who it was from CISA that they questioned, but all of those are available as well. Um, and there's also the live depositions are viewable on YouTube. Um, I've linked to those in the thread as well. You can actually watch them. They released the video of that's them. great. So the next quick question for folks to consider on their own personal, uh, you know, everybody probably has their own unique experiences about being banned, suppressed, throttled, whatever, canceled. Do you think that there'll be if there was a favorable ruling at the SCOTUS about Missouri v. Biden, that individuals will have causes of action against the social media platforms? Well, that's interesting because they went to move this to a class um, back in in July or in May when the hearing happened. They tried to move this as a class that that was denied, but it doesn't really matter um, in this case. 
only because the results and the ramification will be wide sweeping. Um, and the reason why this case has been so wildly successful and others have failed is because in this case, the government is being accused of the censorship mechanism, not the private social media company. Um, in every other instance, other than Alex Berenson's um, case, which he settled, we have only seen judges and, and you know, judges grant motions to dismiss based upon the fact that these are private companies that can do what they want, basically, because this is a government um, action that's being taken. That's why this has been so wildly successful. And just to, to make sure that I hammer this point home at SCOTUS right now is the temporary injunction that has been granted and with and upheld at the Fifth Circuit against the plaintiff, uh, the defendants in this case, them being the government uh, agencies not the actual case body itself. That hasn't even gotten to trial yet. It's an early discovery right now and they're gathering um, discovery. So just to make sure that everyone knows well, that. Well, so if, if individuals had causes of action against the social media platforms, what are they gonna argue? That the government made us do this and it wasn't us? Or are they gonna actually disclose that they received lots of money or lots of favorable deal, deals because of Patriot Act 2.0 to do this stuff? And, and this is why you're spot on here with that, because that's why I've been saying what I've been saying about the, the social media companies being in a position where they really are going to want to comply with the with the narrative we're seeing right now is truth, which is the government coerced them to do the censoring. If they can fall back on that, they're going to, you know, they're going to be able to to emerge victorious, so to speak, in many of these other causes of action that you're talking about being brought. As a matter of fact, just today, um, D.C. Drano filed his, he filed on that Supreme Court docket. Um, his name is Rogan O'Hanley, and he sued Twitter for the reasons that you're talking about right now. And he filed to be heard in conjunction because his suit was dismissed. And so the very thing that you're talking about right now actually just came up today in a concurrent filing on this docket at the SCOTUS. Dude, Robert, sign me up, okay? Because we had America First Projects, which was huge, huge on Facebook. And it went from reaching millions of people a day to reaching like zero people overnight. And then it was gone. Like Facebook just took the entire thing. Well, I mean, the same thing happened to me, Jen, when I was like basically doing the same analysis on all of the legal surrounding the 2020 election. Um, it's Stanford Internet Observatory actually tried to dissect my argument on the Pennsylvania cases that I was making and say it was misinformation. So it absolutely affected things. It will continue to affect things, which is why the stay on this injunction is asinine. And those three judges rightfully called it out because every single day that the public square is is siphoned off, people are harmed, either their ability to listen their self-censorship tactics, or their ability to speak. So it's an ongoing harm every single day. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed that it's an ongoing harm. So SCOTUS is, is out of bounds here. Do you, do you think because well, of that, and, and, that the, the SCOTUS oh. is going to ex expedite the calendar? Well, someone was posting underneath, actually, and said Andrew Bailey on uh, with Benny today said he thinks that this case will be heard by the end of the year. That would be glorious. If they expedited and came back in to hear it, I would be very, very happy. Well, and real quick, Tracy, um, there was another question. This is a perfect time to introduce this question. So the question was, for those of us that are not up to date, could you give us kind of like a like a 30,000 foot view or like a cliff notes on what the dissenting, what the, the three that dissented, what they said? So you can kind of 
I don't know, sum that up so they understand. Yeah, I could do it in a few sentences. Um, they basically said their fellow justices didn't read this case. Otherwise, they never would have done this with this indefinite stay. They said that the government's um, examples are hypotheticals, meaning like they're saying we won't be able to use our bully pulpit to talk to the people in, you know, in the country about what we think is the best course of action on any given topic. And SCOTUS in the dissension said that's a hypothetical that doesn't even tread into what this injunction covers at all. It's nonsense. Um, and and then scolded the government and said, what do you want to censor between now and and the spring when this comes up to us, is that what this is about? That you actually want to be able to censor? Because what you're saying is just not true. He also, They also said that they don't have standing for the stay at all because the likelihood of the merits has been shown and there's been um, irreparable harm. And then they said that they're worried that this decision that was made to stay this indefinitely will be taken as a kind of hat tip to the government censorship operation, letting them censor the places that most Americans are going now to get their news and information. And if you want, Trash, can you pull up the last the last little sentence of the dissent and just read it? Because that, that says it all. Well, and Tracy, something you said right there about, you know, them be getting their news alternatively. Take yourself back to 2020, right, with COVID and everything. If people weren't able to see people online, on Twitter, on Facebook, putting out other information that was counter to the narrative that was being pushed on every single mainstream media outlet, there was no other information. And now come to find out the information that the mainstream media was pushing was completely false. And the in final yeah. sentence that you're talking about, Tracy, I, let me make sure I've got this correct. We're talking about the hypothetical. Um, it should say it should say something like I I fear that by, you know, making this decision. Yep. The very last sentence of it. the. Yeah. So at this time in history of our country, what the court has done, I fear, will be seen by some as giving the government a green light to use heavy handed tactics to skew the presentation of views on the medium that increasingly dominates the dissemination of news. That is most unfortunate. Golly. That's, uh, that's, that's, that's quite something. Uh, real quick, just a note, uh, YouTube just came out with a policy uh, recently that is going to affect, I mean, they've already been doing this, but this, this is basically a direct attack on independent uh, journalists and media people who have large YouTube followings, YouTube channels like, you know, Tim Pools of the world and many others. Their new policy now is going to, they're basically setting forth saying there are authoritative sources on information, i.e. CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, so on and so forth. Basically what YouTube is doubling down on here is we're saying, uh, yeah, because all these legacy media outlets uh, basically spend a ton of money on ad spend on YouTube, these are going to be the authoritative uh, sources. I can pull that up. It was a change in policy just recently uh, that is going to absolutely crater most independent uh, news sources on YouTube. So they're going to have to move to Rumble. And that's why that's why you see them. Yes. And, and just so you know, I just came across this the other day. And I don't know if you've seen it, but FIRE, it's an acronym. Um, it's an organization, a free speech organization in New York, sued New York, a la Missouri v. Biden, but at the state level, because Letitia James was trying to do to the social media companies in New York what the government is doing writ large all over. And the judge barred them 
from continuing with that action as the case moves forward. And they just recently, given the the Hamas-Israel catastrophe that's ongoing, they recently just tried to get social media platform Rumble to give them all of their content moderation strategies surrounding it and everything else against that injunction. And Fire, who was representing Rumble, had to come in and send a cease and desist letter or um, say that they were going to issue a contempt request on the case because New York governor or, or New York AG Letitia James was trying to get involved. Same thing is happening on a statewide level in California. Elon Musk is suing California right now um, as X for the same reason. Um, a demands from the attorney general in California to provide all kinds of information and policy on what they'll be doing to ban people and censor people on social media from California. So I'm following all of this stuff now, and it's really heating up. Yeah, it really is. And because uh, that's that's how important that I would say Heinz v. Stamos and Missouri v. Biden are. And that's why you're seeing these localized actions, because and the private companies. I mean, like, let's be honest, like YouTube, Google, like they're they're (laughs) they're a lost cause. Uh, Meta, I don't know how how smart they're going to be moving forward through all this. We see we see what Elon's trying to fight. Uh, We see what's going on there. And and again, I am not going to attribute any kind of hero or 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 tear down Elon on everything is wait to be seen, but this is the freer spot here and rumble and what Chris Pavlovsky is doing as well uh, is really good. So doing the best we can, I think to fight through this and Tracy, thank you for your you know tenacious reporting on this. If you guys want to read the dissent, uh, it is down in the chat. Uh, the first one is just a quick tweet. The second one that I attached in that thread to Tracy's original is her entire analysis and breakdown. <clears throat> now there was one more question that I saw I think we answered it as far as like um, summarizing the descent, but there was another question I, I saw. I'm not quite sure which the case itself actually answers. I was just going to try to point that out. Uh, but, but if you take a look, it's, it's, it's all. Yeah, yeah, Trish, I, yeah. To, to Robert's question, I just wanted to ask if anyone knew the status of Eric Schmidt's legislation in the U S Senate that enabled individuals to sue federal employees for violating their rights. I know that there's statute in some of the states where you can sue state employees for violating your individual rights, but I know uh, Schmidt was trying to work on that in the Senate, and I don't know if anybody knows an update on that. I got nothing. I've got nothing as well. I was going to leave Maybe. For folks. Go ahead, Robert. Okay, so you know they there's there may be existing code. That, that addresses suppression of civil rights, like free speech, you know. Um, it's, it's an old Civil Rights Act of 1871. People, the senators could say, oh, you already got the right right now. You don't need it. But what I think what Senator Schmidt now is doing was to make it really specific. And I, I definitely support that legislation. Hope, hope uh, McConnell and Swamp people will let that go through. Not, not, op, not uh, optimistic about that. But people could, could say you've got, you've got rights from an individual standpoint, you could do civil actions against government officials suppressing your your rights, like free speech. Um, I do know that there is a Supreme Court case called Bivens or Blivens that uh, gives citizens the right to sue the U.S. government for civil rights violations. Uh, there's also 1983 claims. Yeah, that's the one I was and, talking about. Uh, so Bivens is near, it could be yeah. cer- certain parameters, but yes, those are those are both good. They might not. I, I'm not a lawyer, so they might not apply directly to what you know social media. But 
We'll see. Hey, guys. Can so, I have just a few minutes to make a comment? I don't, do, you, do you have a question regarding the case, or are we going to take – I, I want to kind of stay on top. Yeah, yes, it's, it is – Hello? I think we hey, lost Is that Jim? Yeah. This Jim, I, I, I've actually been sued. Hi, Jim. Hi, guys. I've How actually, are you? I'm great. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. There is a way that you can sue a state or federal or local authority for violating your civil rights. It's Title 42, Section 1983. Ask me how I know. Um, and the, the person that does this, that violates your civil rights, that you do get discovery on going both ways. And uh, further, it's not just civilly, it's also criminally. That's why these, these uh, cases that are going ag uh, against Mr. Trump right now, this is not just, um, it's, it's any of your rights that are enumerated in the Bill of Rights. You can be sued for, for violating any of them. That's why the cases like what's going on in Atlanta is so uh, damnable because they're, they're arguing that you have uh, no, no rights to do what you did. And well, with, in where she issues the gag order, Letitia James isn't the way I'm getting my Chutkin. Judge Chutkin has violated Donald Trump's civil rights, but she is not an employee or a, um, or a vassal that is under color of law. That's the, that's the, that's the kicker. Any of them can be sued, but it has to be under color of law. So you're going to see people like governors or someone that's in an administrative trying to enforce a regulation or a rule. Then they're functioning under color of law because you have the threat of either a fine or imprisonment. If that's the case, then you can prosecute. But if there's no, yeah. go ahead. But Jim, what if they have immunity, right? And I don't know if this is like the same thing or maybe I'm just confused. Uh, but like when Eric Swalwell and Jamie Raskin changed my tweet on the floor of Congress um, and I tried to sue them, right? When they added the blue check mark, you know, changed the complete meaning of my tweet, changed my photo. Like I tried to sue them independently and they, I got told that they have like uh, parliamentary immunity um, on the floor of Congress. They do, but there's also something called qualified immunity where the person, if the person did what they did and they violated your civil rights, but it was what they were supposed to be doing as told by their department or agency or whomever, then that individual person is going to get a pass, but the department does not. The department does not get a pass for that. And then you end up, you, you don't just uh, sue the department, you, uh, the, excuse me, the person, you sue the department at the same time. And qualified immunity does, does mean something here. So you're, you're probably not going to get the individual if someone higher up has told them to do this, but you might be able to get through vicarious liability, the person that's above them. And you might be able to get the agency department, city, county, whatever it was that did that in the first place. That's why I think all of the mask mandates that happened and denying people the right to assemble, to uh, go to church, to all of that. I think all of that is subject to litigation under this because the penalty were fines and imprisonment. I think every bit of that is subject to 42-1983. And that, that highlights, again, the, the, 
the, the reason that these two cases that we're referencing here, the Heinz v. Stamos, Missouri v. Biden is so important moving forward because individuals will be able to take, you know, some of this discovery and this material, hopefully, and be able to then be able to create their own lawsuits for their own losses as well, instead of joining as a plaintiff. Uh, the plaintiffs are a mile long in these cases as of right now, but <clears throat> it's very important to note that all of this is the ramifications of this is not just ending with this case and discovery. This this is going to open it up for many other people. So I, I think those are the right questions to ask. Uh, Tracy, I know you're busy. I don't know how much time you have left. If uh, you want to let me know, maybe we can carry this on for another few questions and then maybe we can close it down. Yeah, I'm fine. I actually have time today to stay on with you until the questions are exhausted. So. No kidding. What what a gift today. Thank you, Tracy. So if you guys want to have any questions, <laughs> comments, uh, put them down in the uh uh, the chat here i'm looking for them right now seeing if there's any other questions that would be you know suitable to ask on this panel uh but meanwhile uh, so again i can't remind you guys enough uh, follow everyone up on stage uh, everyone here is trying to do the, the best work they can to try to help this country and <clears throat> also tracy's reporting on this is down in the chat let me see here what this says. Uh, talk to the various plaintiffs, law firms about getting copies of depositions. Okay. So James uh, Charlton here says, uh, talk to the various plaintiffs, law firms about getting copies of depositions and discovery, which is not yet uh, filed as part of motion. He says, be nice and offer to pay for copies, email, staff time, etc. The official court reporter will give for a fee daily transcripts to anyone requesting them in most jurisdictions. So if that answers your questions, guys, about uh, obtaining some of this for different lawsuits, for different purposes, uh, you can do that if you play nice. Um, and OK, so we've answered the question. What's the gist of the three dissenting SCOTUS opinions? Uh, let's see. How does this equate to our freedom of speech on a sidewalk or a public venue? Uh, well, it doesn't. But this is this is more these cases specifically are taking on uh, digital communications and platform, the digital town hall, which would be social media. That's what these cases are, are defining against. Uh, those, that's a whole other conversation to be had. Um, now, real quick. Trash, I got a question real great, quick. Great, great. Yeah, so effectively right now, um, the censorship industrial complex, or how that's, I guess, what we're calling it, is that effectively defunded at the moment? Because And then we saw CISA added a couple of weeks ago. Um, and... If it is defunded, Tracy, do you see a push to get that refunded uh, or it, do you foresee it being refunded even if the case is still ongoing since it was so effective in the last election? No, it's not. It's actually that's what what, you know, we're basically lamenting today is that the Supreme Court put a stay on um, on the injunction that stopped them from taking this action. And so they can still take it as of today. Um, because of that. So everything is basically status quo from before this happened. And the funding I think you're referring to, Jen, is when uh, <clears throat> the DOD funding out of uh, for Pentagon and DOD. So that funding was was actually pulled. So what that means is a lot of the other uh, CIA carve outs and these other NGOs that are not like Stanford Internet Observatory that were connected with like DOD or the Pentagon. All of those have been defunded. Yes. But that is the importance of paying attention to NDAAs that are coming through. Because this is where they tried to refund and create new offices, i.e. name is here. Go look at the Foreign Malign Influence Center. The Foreign Malign Influence Center was basically replacing what the Disinformation Governance Board was supposed to be doing. Once that got taken down in 20 days, 
the formal line influence centers kind of ramped up its operations and that came in under the NDAA. There are several NDAAs kicking around both in the Senate and the House. They believe in the House, at least the America Freedom Caucus believes that the one in the House is the most viable moving forward and removes a lot of these censorship apparatuses. I'm not convinced, but I haven't seen it. So that's going to be it's going to be important to pay attention to the NDAAs moving forward and them creating these new offices of censorship underneath these various different uh, agencies within our government. You know, what stuns me about the NDAA, sorry, Jen, I misinterpreted your question because I don't think it's directly tied to the case, but that was my fault, not yours. Um, um, what stuns me about this is the NDAA is still actually something that our senators and congressmen talk about, and they'll use the guise of national security to do it. Um, but we clearly see they're not concerned about national security at all because we have a wide open southern border. So it's really just as it was filed the first day that it was passed. A mechanism to control you. And that's that's what the NDAA is. And I haven't, you know, even Devin Nunes would advocate for the NDAA. And it's just a nightmarish, a nightmarish piece of legislation. They tried to sneak some other things in, if I recall correctly, um, in a separate bill. Remember, Lindsey Graham didn't know what the bill was or what it said. What was that? Uh, he was asked about it. It was it was something else that came about. Trash, do you remember what I'm talking about? Uh, it was it was additional funding for wars uh, and it was a censorship, uh, a censorship uh, type of apparatus. And they said, well, why are you including this in here? And he said, well, I'd be honest with you, I hadn't read it. <laughs> so it was kind of what we're Wasn't it something like the Safe Act, Internet restrict, Act or something restrict. like about it was it was, it was the Restrict Act. Act. Yes, 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 yes. That was a. Uh, so, wasn't that a Blumenthal thing? Or no, not Blumenthal. What's who's the other guy? Trash. Oh, I tried to sneak that in. I'm trying to remember who it was because uh, he's a Republican. He's, a, he's on the uh, Senate uh, Intel Committee. Yes, uh, it was the guy from North Dakota, no, wasn't it? Hang on. Or South Dakota. Gordon. I, I'm trying to remember who that was because he then went out and put a, a, a thread out. Once we started attacking the restrict act, like constantly on spaces everywhere, Jennifer and Dustin, you guys were doing it. Elon's yep. retweeting it and responding to it. We were uh, at that time. Mark was still, Warner. Warner. Mark Warner. That's it. And yeah, by the way, yep. I, I, I don't like being the guy who goes, you know, there's something I, I know that I'm not going to say, but this guy is up to no good because there's another thing. And Tracy and trash, I've told you, I don't know if you remember, but it's something that is, I, I literally can't tweet about it. I just, I sent it to the Missouri v. Biden people because you don't want to like put everything you know in public because it could jeopardize things and they can go start deleting and changing shit. But that guy, Warner, dangerous guy. Same guy who tried to- And John that. Thune name. Yeah. Anyway. Well, Warner was, was behind, Warner was the one who was talking to Assange and Christopher Steele and- he was big in Spygate. So, yeah, he's a bad news. No, he's incredibly in bad. He's incredible bad news. So, yeah, this is this is the fight, guys. This is what you got to be paying attention to. And real quick, uh, Jill, I believe this question is probably going to be directed at you. Um, there was somebody here. Uh, she was also removed from social media as well. Uh, and her question was, uh, this is Silent Survivor. Uh, she said, can I still have a lawyer file an amicus brief on my behalf or is it too late? Uh, for Missouri v. Biden, I, I don't think it's too. I'm, I, that's 
a legal question above my pay grade, but I don't think it's too late. As far as Heinz v. Stamos, it's a class action. So um, she can, you know, be a part of it when we are successful, I'm guessing, at the end. But I'm not really sure about um, an answer. She can on SCOTUS. Yes. Okay. 100% yes. See, Tracy knows it all. Ask Tracy. <laughs> I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> So, yeah, no, that's, and I, I would assume that um, she could probably move forward. I would talk to an attorney about that. Uh, you can pre- present all the analysis of the case itself, and I'm sure they can look into it for sure. I would like you to be able to join on if you can. So I'm still looking for more questions, guys. If not, we can probably wrap this up. I just wanted to update since we've been doing these spaces, Tracy, you and I for, and name Jennifer for a while on this Missouri v. Biden and now Heinz v. Stamos, which I now will be getting my hands all over as well. So Heinz v. Samos and Missouri v. Biden, both I am now going to jump all over as well. With you, Tracy, I'll help with the looking through the 800 pages. Um, but uh, I, I'm not seeing too many other questions. I don't know if anybody else has any final words or statements or questions or anything else. Please let me know. And we'll go from there. If not, uh, you can always access these recordings of all these spaces and all these threads that have been done in the past. If you go to my profile... It's the highlights tab, which is the third one from the left. You click that and all the recordings of the spaces are in there. All the threads are in there. And obviously, if you want to access a lot of this content, specifically the analysis that Tracy's put forward, just go to her profile. The mega threads are all there. All all the content's there, guys. Yeah, Jen, go ahead. Yeah, Tracy, going forward, if you have any, like, calls to action for people to, like, write letters or phone calls to the court or anything like that, let us know and we can uh, rally people to start doing that. All right. Fantastic. Yeah. And just tell your primary people space. I'm going to have to hop in a non-Missouri Biden Biden space of yours one day. Um, Tell your primary people, start working now and get their army all ready to go because they're up against it and they're going to need all the support they can get. Heck yeah. That's what we've been doing. We've been uh, Jim down here, Jim. uh, He's actually running against Turd Ferguson. Uh, That's his new name. That's what we're calling him um, but uh yeah he's doing really good and he's been an amazing add to uh these spaces that we've had over the past couple of days and uh really getting to like him he's great thank you jim we should have a vetting space where we that's what we've been doing tracy you got to join us so, so we've had like a whole range of candidates uh that are running in primaries all over the country Uh, Come up in the spaces, tell us about their races, uh, what, you know, obstacles they're facing, uh, if the Clinton machine is coming after them or the Obama machine or the, you know, the establishment. Like up until this point, these smaller races and these people, these candidates who are brave enough to run, uh, they haven't had a place where they could go and get their story out and tell other people of the obstacles and the, you know, the fights they're in in order to get elected as good America first candidates. So spaces have become a really great place to platform these races and to get these primary opponents to these people to get their stories out. That's fantastic. I want to hit them with my, I used to do before we end trash when I, back in the day, the Ron Paul days, um, there was an organization called Liberty candidates and we had a like 20 question vetting form and we used to send them out to all the candidates would come to us and say, we'd like to be endorsed by Liberty candidates And we'd send them back the vetting questionnaire and we had like a panel of like 20 or 30 hardcore liberty minded constitutionalists. I was on the panel um, vetting these candidates based on their answers. And I found the questionnaire like a week or two ago 
And you guys would lose it if you saw what we were talking about in like 2009. It would be perfect for today. I should pass it along so you can use it. Yeah, please do. We would love that. Awesome. Yes. Yeah, I would take. Good job. I would answer that questionnaire. No problem. It's it's good stuff. It really, really you have to know your you have to know your shit. No pun intended. <laughs> to, to, to answer it, so I'll send yeah. it over, Jim. I yeah, Tracy accepted. Send it Please to send me. it I'll, over. I'd love that's to. What, Put me that's on what, clock too. There's got to be a time limit so that you're not googling this stuff. That's what we're doing at America Mission. We're going to start helping these candidates because you know the the ones in the primary. Like you said, like the GOP is not supposed to be, you know, interfering in all these races and they're doing it all across the country. Right. So by the time they get into through the primary, they're so beat up by the time they get to the general election that they have to fight all these battles um, and, and still get through the primary where the GOP is not supposed to be. And, and they, they get them on media buys, they get them on uh, send, you know, different uh, vendors for the campaigns. So at American mission, Dustin and I've been doing this for over a decade. So we've gathered all of our resources and we're going to start helping these people like Jim and all these races across the country, you know, take some of those, those uh, outrageous prices and bring them down. So they have, more money to be in the fight and not have to you know expend their money in all these other places that's fantastic and never discount the the power of a door knock especially for these local races it's huge no 100 percent. or uh or interrupting a uh pharmacy place like uh mike pence did that's Mike Pence, <laughs> not uh, the other. There was like, yeah, like four people in there. Like, why is this guy with white hair yelling at us right now? This is so weird. Oh, he totally paid them. Come on. Right. <laughs> he, that was a pharmacy. Did he serious? <laughs> it was like a pharmacy or Hallmark card place where he sat all these people and like no one was smiling. So it's like, obviously they got paid money to sit there. It's pretty funny. I just want to say that Tom Emmer is the wish.com version of Mike Pence. Just putting it out there now, people. Start in the game. Let's go. <laughs> so we'll just close it out, uh, Trash, quickly by just saying that the Missouri v. Biden decision is on the temporary injunction. Um, as per Andrew Bailey on Benny's show earlier, they're trying, I guess, to, to get this heard before session starts again in the spring. Um, so there's an, an, you know, a stay on this with no end and never ending stay on the temporary injunction until the SCOTUS hears the merits of it. Um, from what the justices who dissented, dissented said, the other justices didn't even read the record to know what the case was really about before they made the decision, which highly troubled them. It's a rather unprecedented thing to have a five page dissent alongside a decision for cert like this. And it happened. So there are positives and negatives, but we just have to make sure that um, we're paying attention. Hopefully, A.G. Bailey is correct, and they pick this up earlier in some sort of emergency session or something, and we get to the end result, which I am nearly certain will be an upholding of that injunction. But until then, the government is free to work with social media companies to coerce them to censor your speech on social media without fear of any ramifications. Yeah, so house cleaning note. Um... Uh, trash i dm'd you told you why i couldn't make it on earlier i assume you saw that um but 
Tracy's the one who has covered this from a journalist perspective or point of view from the beginning in detail, meaning reading all the court, uh, the filings, you know, trash and I keep up with them. We read them too. And then we have spaces. So, but especially Tracy is the one sort of journalist who runs a company who is covering this like in detail. It's really um, getting on my nerves that, you know, that's fine if other outlets or journalists want to cover this situation, but this is the second situation where I've seen people, and I'm not going to say the person's name, but put out a headline or, or thing called saying victory. Like, I don't know what's going on, but there are journalists with large platforms, or at least they call themselves journalists, that literally will put out some catch catch catchy like headline of this and they it's very obvious they haven't even read the damn filing or the order or whatever it's really annoying so if you want to get you know tracy's going to cover same with trash me whoever we're going to just put out the truth on this case we're going to read the filings and put out what it is we're not going to we're not putting things out for impressions or Twitter ad revenue or whatever it is. So, you know, I, I just wish these other people that are sort of covering this just stop, just take a seat and just sit this one out and go towards <laughs> their other things. Cause it's really getting on my nerves when I see a, a article by someone, thankfully it's behind a paywall. So you have to like pay to read the garbage. Uh, that says victory because there's really certainly nothing in the Supreme Court thing that's a victory other than that they're going to hear it. But again, it's only on the injunction. It's like not even on the case, which I think this person is getting wrong, too. But in their decision to hear it, there's certainly no victory. I mean, like, come on, it's re getting absurd. But anyway, just a vent. Sorry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Name, for that kind of kind hat tip. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I do. It is frustrating. We talked about it earlier, like in the beginning. Um, it is frustrating. But I think people are getting to the point where they're reading for themselves, which is awesome. Don't kill me, Trash. I got a voicemail. I got to return it like literally two seconds ago. But I love you guys. Thanks for doing this. You guys rock. And uh, hopefully we'll have some more news before the end of the year. Yep, 100%. Uh, I'm, I'm hoping we will too. And Tracy, so. thank you so much. Name, everybody, Jim. Uh, Jill, everyone follow Health uh, Health uh, Freedom Louisiana. She's up on stage. We need to get her platform built out on X here. Uh, is a plaintiff in the Hines v. Stamos case moving forward. So uh, really excited. Jill, if you have any final words before I close this out, go ahead, and then I'm going to close it down. No, just uh, thank you again for allowing me to share our experience and uh, for the follows. Uh, greatly appreciated. Uh, we appreciate the work that you guys are doing on this, too, to keep everybody informed. Very good job. Excellent work. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the kind words. So, guys, uh, you know me. Just keep following me. Um, we're all over this. Anytime there's anything breaking, anything new. Tracy will find it first, no doubt, and then she'll DM me and name, and then we start looking at it, and then we have our own back conversations about what it all means, what it seems like, and then um, then the process goes that Tracy will then thread whatever it is, and then we open up a space the following Monday and go over the information, and we break it all down in bite-sized pieces. So thanks you all for being here again. Jim, good to see you again, everybody, name, and uh, look for part eight. I'm sure it's, I'm hoping it's coming before the end of the year. Talk to you guys soon.
Dude, I hope so. Me too, bro. I hope so. Me too. Thanks, Crash. I, uh, look, listen, I give you credit because I frustrating it, it. It's if any corporation anywhere in the world ran like this effing government, they would be out of business in less than a month. Forget about years. Yeah. Like everybody would have been fired within 30 days. <laughs> Just to be clear. <laughs> Literally everybody. Hemorrhaging money, not able to make decisions, bickering amongst one another. Um, imagine trying to run a board meeting and all you need to do is elect the chair to, to, to chair the meeting. And you can't do that because you're too busy fighting with each other over who, which I mean, come on. Like it's you know what it is. It reminds me of local politics when a new guard comes in with a new vision and direction and the old guard does not want to let go of the microphone. It's exactly what it is. Because I experienced it myself, so I know. And it's terrible. Like, imagine, right? Imagine for a moment you're an employer. And all of your employees are taking money from adversarial companies 